So it is time to be optimistic and the pipeline is as robust as it can be. And we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that that pipeline stays robust and diverse so that we have more shots on goal and have a, a successful therapeutic. Hello to everyone listening and welcome back to Connecting ALS. My name is Mike Stevenson and I'm joined by my co-host from North Carolina, Jeremy Holden. Hello to you, sir. Hey, Mike. How are you doing this week? Doing well, thanks. Warmer temps have me uh, in a good mood. And uh, I'm excited because this week we're discussing some of the recent and ongoing developments in global ALS research. And Jeremy, we're bringing back Dr. Kuldip Dabe, who heads up research at the ALS Association because... He's very much in the know on the latest happenings, obviously, and as important, he can explain the science in a way that uh, regular folks like you and I can understand. Yeah, always uh, refreshing to have Dr. Dave on, and in fortuitous timing, uh, you know, Mike, we can share it in the show notes, but USA Today is out this week with an article talking about where we are in the search for ALS treatments and a cure. A very hopeful article, very hopeful time talking about kind of where things stand now. So great to hear from Dr. Dave, and, and you know, Mike, we got to talk to Dr. Dave about a paper just published out of some researchers up at Northwestern looking at a new compound that has a lot of people really hopeful about where the, where we go from here. A number of headlines in ALS research over the past month and a half, and, and that's good because it means uh, developments are happening, and we covered a lot of those with Dr. Dave. So let's listen back to our conversation now. We're on the line today with someone who is no stranger to this podcast, and for good reason, as he is one of the world's foremost experts in ALS research and the ALS Association's Vice President for Research, Dr. Kuldip Dave. Dr. Dave, welcome back to Connecting ALS. Thank you for having me, Mike. We're always looking forward to getting research updates from you. Uh, this episode will be no exception. ALS Research has been making headlines since we turned the calendar into 2021, and one of the more exciting developments uh, is related to a paper published in Clinical and Translational Medicine describing how researchers at Northwestern reported that they identified a compound that eliminated degeneration of motor neurons that are connected to the development of ALS. Doctor, what have you heard about this development and what can you tell us about research into the compound known as NU9? Yeah, thank you, uh, Mike, for that question. We're very excited to see these uh, findings published. Let's first talk about the project itself mm -hmm. before we talk about NU9. So uh, the ALS Association supported Dr. Ostendler and his team at Northwestern University a few years ago through the funds raised during the Ice Bucket Challenge. And the goal of the project was to find out the protein landscape of healthy and vulnerable motor neurons in two different stages of the disease. So what do I mean by that? We know that in ALS, we have neurons, which are our brain cells, that are sick and dying, and we have neurons that are fine and healthy. And we know that those unhealthy, sick neurons, things start to dysfunction. And Dr. Ostendler wanted to see what proteins are changing in neurons that are sick versus neurons that are fine and healthy. In other words, can changes in protein landscape lead to neurons being more vulnerable to cell death? 
And why is this important? Because if we can find those proteins that are specific to unhealthy neurons, then those can serve as markers to tell mm-hmm. us something bad is going on. Or they can serve as, um, you know, for, to identify new therapeutic targets for us. For example, if we know a certain protein is dysfunctional, then we can make drugs against that protein. The other reason why Dr. Ostendler's work that you mentioned that was published in Clinical Translational Medicine, why is, it is so relevant is that it was focusing on upper motor neurons. And so what are upper motor, upper motor neurons? These neurons take signals from the brain and transmit them to the spinal cord so that the movement can happen. So they're very, very important in ALS. And we know that these upper motor neurons get sick, degenerate, and die in ALS. So this was the rationale for our funding a few years back for this study. And the results of that funding was that his team found that there are certain proteins and protein function that was changed in two very specific cellular structures, the mitochondria, which is the energy producer of our cells, and this other cellular structure called ER, or endoplasmic reticulum. Uh, I know that's a big, big word, mm-hmm. um, which is involved in making new proteins and folding them the right way. So I wanted to give you this background before I spoke about the drug MU9. Sure. Um, so how did, they, how did they find this drug? So re- researchers at Northwestern University screened and tested over 50,000 compounds. Mm, And then they did multiple rounds of optimizing the chemistry, and that's how they got this compound in U9. Now, remember I told you that they found protein changes in upper motor neurons in two different areas, mitochondria Mm -hmm. and the ER? Mm -hmm. They tested this compound in U9 in cells and in animals and found that the drug improved the structural integrity of those two structures, the mitochondria and ER. The drug kind of stabilized cell death, and in fact, and this was really significant, reversed some of the pathology, the bad stuff that was going on, essentially making sick neurons healthy again. Mm. And in mice, it also improved motor function. So this is really very, very exciting. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. And, uh, you know, I know we saw a little bit of chatter on social media, and, and I think this happens from time to time when there's exciting news. And I think folks are so excited for new treatments to come online and be available that, you know, we can get ahead of ourselves, get out over our skis. Where are we now in terms of what we know about NU9? What are the next steps between today and having something that is marketable and available for people with ALS? Yeah, well... You know, hope is a big thing in ALS, and we, you know, when when we see good data, positive results like this, there is certainly going to be a lot of excitement. But there are a couple of things, Mike, as you say, we should keep in mind here in terms of the timeline. This research was conducted on mouse models, and there are a few steps that still need to happen. These are early results. They already have a lot of information collected on the drug. sort of where it acts, whether it enters the brain, how long does it stay in the brain. These are the things we call PK or pharmacokinetics of the drug. It's great that they have this information. Now, they need to make sure that the chemistry 
of the compound is such that it can be given to humans. They would also need to make sure that the drug is safe and tolerable. And generally that is done in two different species of animals. And once they have that data, <clears throat> once they collect that data, they can then submit a package to the FDA to ask to do a clinical trial. And when the FDA looks at the data package and grants them a go-ahead, that is when they can start to test the treatment in humans for safety and efficacy. That's a good reminder of kind of the, the process and, and really what it takes before treatments can come to market, Dr. Dave. I want to pivot to another association-funded study that's been in the news, and it's out of Koya Therapeutics, which recently announced it has raised $10 million in funding to advance the development of Treg therapies. I've heard of Tregs being applied to cancer research, doctor, but what exactly are they and how might they fit into ALS research? Yeah, so let's start kind of breaking that question down into a couple of things sure. so that... So that everybody understands what we're talking about. Let's start with T-cells first, mm -hmm. then talk about Dr. Appel's study, and then the Koya therapeutics relevance here. So what are Tregs? Tregs are short for regulatory T-cells. So our immune system protects us, gives us immunity against a lot of foreign materials like, um, like bacteria or viruses. Mm. This is in front of all of our minds these days with the COVID virus and the antibodies that fight the virus. So we all kind of appreciate what our immune system does. Right. Our immune system does that through many different cell types. There, is, there are something called B cells, neutrophils, macrophages, uh, natural killer cells, and of course there are T cells. And all of these cells have different function, but they come together to operate as our immune system. Tregs are very unique because they regulate other immune cells. That's the name, regulatory T cells. And they help us tune our immune system. So what do I mean by that? So let's say we have a small viral infection. We don't want our immune system to blast at level 10. Maybe we want it to be at level three so it can still protect us against that relatively smaller, smaller viral infection. And that's what Tregs do. They make sure, they, they regulate the immune system to the right amount. In ALS, there has been studies that have shown that Tregs are reduced and that lower the Tregs, the faster the progression of ALS. Hmm. And so, this is why Tregs are biologically so important to ALS. So now to the next step, which is Dr. Appel and, and the discovery they, they made. So Dr. Appel and his team down at Houston Medical and his collaborators at Mass General Hospital figured out that if you can extract Tregs from patients, expand them, make them healthy, and then you inject them back, that they can function in a more optimal way and fight the disease. Dr. Appel piloted this approach in very early study of three people uh, with ALS. And he was able to show that you can do this approach in a safe way. Hmm. After that study, the ALS Association came together with Muscular Dystrophy Association and ALS Finding a Cure, and we co-funded a $2.5 million study to expand that approach to more patients, 
to see if this type of approach could be feasible. In the current trial, Dr. Appel is getting safety information, uh, measuring biomarkers, and looking at feasibility of being able to do this type of therapy in, in more patients. Hmm. Now, your, your question about COYA therapeutics is important in this context because we just heard that this biotech raised $10 million to take this TREG approach and develop a drug development program around it. This is really good and exactly what we want. Companies can raise private capital and can make serious investments in clinical trials, which are very expensive. An academic lab with nonprofit funding can only take it so far. So we're, we're really glad that our seed funding at a critical juncture in early clinical testing has led to this more focused drug discovery program that has more private dollars behind it. Yeah, and further evidence of the way that the, some of the research that we do fund at the ALS Association is able to leverage into that private sector uh, investment and, and kind of balloon that out. Um, so fascinating to see. And now, Dr. Dave, the, the T-REG study, similar to what we were talking about earlier, still in the early phases, but we're seeing some promise that will continue to propel this forward through the uh, development process. Yes, it, it, exactly. Uh, what is important is that early stage proof of concept study. You know, this will this approach work? To what extent will it work? To um, uh, what, what's the type of biomarkers we should be looking at to tell us that the drug is doing what it's supposed to do? Mm. And so these early studies, uh, Jeremy, are very important for establishing what the parameters of the drug is. What are the sort of guardrails of, of this treatment? And they, they, they give you a lot of information. But once you have that information, you can build a larger trial based upon that. And, and so you're exactly right. You know, earlier stage trials can seed larger, more informed trials and hopefully more successful trials. Thanks for that clarification, doctor. It's so helpful. I know I keep saying it, but to have you kind of break down the science for us in a way that makes more sense, we really appreciate it. You spoke a little bit earlier, referenced the pandemic, uh, which of course is, is still going on and is impacting research on some levels. But I'm curious your thoughts on how clinical trials are going and how they've been going for the last year, considering some of the st- steps for uh, safety that clinical trial managers have had to take during the pandemic. We've heard about reducing uh, travel requirements and adjusting placebo methods, things like that. Will any of that carry over as we emerge out of the pandemic and its challenges? Because uh, we're hearing reports that some of these steps have allowed for greater access in clinical trials. Yeah, first let's talk about this situation we're in, this pandemic has been horrible and the people who have been affected and and have died of COVID, our Mm. hearts go back to them. Mm -hmm. The approaches that society had to take to mitigate the pandemic, such as shutdowns and distancing, were all necessary. However, they did affect ongoing clinical trials for diseases such as ALS. So as you're saying, the clinical trial managers had to adapt as to how to provide patients with experimental therapies and how do you measure if they're working, but do it in during this time of pandemic. And so things like virtual visits, 
or remote monitoring or home safety assessments. These became essential. And, and credit goes to the clinical trialists. They kept the trial going on using these approaches during this very, very challenging time. To your question, when we do come out of this, and we will, will things go back to normal? Or is there a new normal for clinical trials? Mm -hmm. Did the last year kind of set a new paradigm for how clinical trials are done? Can we measure speech or muscle strength or breathing function at home? Can safety assessments be done at home by telephone or by a visiting nurse? Is that good enough? I think the trialist and FDA will need to really rethink that for the future development of drugs and whether this will now allow more patients to be involved in the clinical trial process. Dr. Dave, there was news earlier this week out of USA Today talking about the continued push to try and get access to AMX35 out of Amelix to, to patients as quickly as possible. The conversations continue with the FDA and Amelix over that. Uh, but one of the things that struck me about that piece was the the connection to um, ice bucket challenge money that went early into that. You mentioned the role that um, ice bucket challenge money played in funding the early research up in Northwestern that led to the, what we now know about NU9. And I'm just curious your thoughts on where we are today in terms of the search for treatments and a cure. We're starting to see the fruits and continue to see the fruits of some of that that ice bucket money spending early. Have we moved that timeline up, or where where do you see us now in terms of like the next breakthrough on the horizon? Or have we gone from five years? to, uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about where that search is. Yeah. Well, again, uh, let me put this in a larger context first. The Illis Association funds um, a, a very large footprint in research. We fund biology, which is very essential for us to understand what is going wrong. In Illis, we fund therapeutics, drug development, whether that's preclinical or early clinical drug development. We fund research into assistive technology, telehealth, telemedicine research, uh, research into uh, measuring burden for caregivers, for patients. We also fund a lot of infrastructure, data-based development, antibodies development, assays, which helps the entire field. And we're very lucky to have an opportunity like the Ice Bucket Challenge to be able to allow us to keep doing that kind of comprehensive research that we fund. Our funding for AMX35 came out of the, that funding. It was, in fact, one of the first therapies that we funded out of the Ice Bucket Challenge funds. And again, to reiterate my point from earlier, this is our sweet spot to fund at earlier critical junctures where a proof of concept is needed to then drive that program forward. And we're so, so happy that the central trial that we all now know from last year's announcement showed such a positive benefit. You know, it was the first therapeutic to have a positive benefit in both function and survival. That is really exciting. You know, to answer your question around how many years are we looking at, it's hard to always pin down the time, whether it's two years, three years, or five years. Let me, let me tell you this. The pipeline is so robust right now. We have over 100 different companies with programs in ALS. 
we have over 60 different clinical trials in different phases, phase one, phase two, phase three. We have drugs that are targeting different proteins and pathways. We have different approaches. Some are small molecules like the NU9 molecule. Some are cell therapies like Treg cell therapies. Some are biological therapies like Tofelson trial that Biogen is doing. And as we know today, there are four to five other therapies in phase three, which if successful can be approved soon. So it is time to be optimistic. And the pipeline is as robust as it can be. And we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that that pipeline stays robust and diverse so that we have more shots on goal and have a, a successful therapeutic. Thank you so much for coming on to uh, provide these explanations and updates on the world of ALS research, Dr. Dave. Like you said, generating that hope is key. And given some of the developments that we discussed today, there is reason to be hopeful. Thanks again, doctor. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Mike and Jeremy. I always love talking to you both. Always great to hear from Dr. Dave, Mike. I think we have to be careful not to ask him back too much, but we could be too greedy of his time, but he's so generous to, to give it to us and kind of walk us through and really kind of boil down the science, as you said, in a way that folks like you and I can understand and uh, really kind of infuse this conversation with a sense of hope of, of where things stand and, and what's on the horizon. What I appreciate, Jeremy, is how much context he provides. He, he knows uh, all of the phases and all the steps that go into this ALS research. And maybe we just see the top level stuff or some of the headlines that we're reading about. But to hear about the background and the history and the funding, that, that all is a piece of the puzzle. And, and we really appreciate the way that Dr. Dave explains that. So it, like you said, great to talk to him. That's going to wrap this week's show. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast either at ConnectingALS.org or wherever you are listening right now. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter to make sure you're up to speed on all of the latest content. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. We'll connect with you again soon. Mm-hmm.